what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. I'm sitting here with my friend Trey Cole, who was on a PTSD episode last year, and we just decided the sound quality wasn't uh, the best that it could be. We were in the top of the clock tower here in Denver and pretty echoey in a glass chamber. And I just thought the um, content was important enough to have better sound quality. And uh, Trey, thanks for making the time again. And I appreciate you doing kind of a part two. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So you're a PsyD, not a PhD, and a therapist yes. and a clinical psychologist. And the, the basis of that first conversation was PTSD. Mm-hmm. And so we had some veterans in there. And I know what the, the words mean, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Sure. But what does it actually look like or feel like? And that's what I wanted to kind of open the, this conversation with. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's. I think. I think the history of it is really interesting because it, it's changed a lot over time. You know, I think initially, you heard, early ringings of it. Uh, there was a, you know, around the time of like Freud and those sorts of folks, um, kind of diverged in two different routes. Uh, there was a, guy named uh, Janae who came about and talked about it more from this like. Uh, dissociation perspective like it's you know like events that happen that are too much to bear and then like we have to kind of do something with that and so sometimes it gets pushed out of awareness or focused on certain things as opposed to others and Freud kind of took it a different way and then it kind of got its first formal names you know around like wartime World War II the sort of shell shock uh, ideas and those sort of things came around and then around that time it started getting uh, like it changed diagnostically, like as it got put into the DSM and those sorts of things, and it started taking shape as more of an anxiety type issue. That's what it was kind of headed under. Um, and then to how it is today, where it's almost in some ways kind of going back, hearkening to Janae's original ideas of uh, what trauma looks like for folks. So rather than being this just purely internal struggle, there's also a component of how it affects your relationships and uh, your experience of yourself, uh, all those types of things that might get in the way to living a more fulfilled, functional life. Now, I'd imagine that it looks different for everybody, right? There's probably not a blanket, like five bullet points where like, check, 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 check. You've got PTSD, right? Well, there is that checklist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why you're the side and I'm the knucklehead with the microphones. <laughs> Uh, I mean, so let me tell you, Trey. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Please continue. Thank no, you. No, no, that's, I mean, I think that's, um, obviously there's some truth, to, I think, to both of those things. You know, if you look at like diagnostic criteria and how that changes in the, you know, diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, dash five, now we're in the fifth iteration of that. If you look at that, you know, there's a pretty clear cut standard of what PTSD is and how it's diagnosed and all those sorts of things. But honestly, you know, I mean, I think what you have to realize about those systems too, though, is that they are made by people uh, who also have mm, not access to grind per se, but also, um, you know, they have like their own allegiances to how they view the world and how it looks. So, you know, in that 
context, I think the tough part is trying, you know, do we want to view this as like a medical issue that, you know, then needs diagnosing and then treating through a certain realm? Or do we look at it as sort of a human problem as to like what happens when people experience really crappy things that, you know, you don't just like wake up the next day and think, eh, you know, no big deal. That was just, you know, I just had this massive death, this massive loss or uh, something terrible happened to me. And so, you know, no big deal. We'll just move on from that. Mm -hmm. And I hate to paint it like with such broad brushstrokes, but, you know, I think there is a component of, um, you know, with the diagnostic system, there are a lot of things that also can be left out or experiences that aren't touched on. So, you know, when we're looking at the iteration from DSM-4 to 5, uh, PTSD uh, had, you know, kind of a group that got together and they said, well, we're going to develop this diagnosis or kind of redevelop it. And the VA was actually instrumental originally looking at this idea of like the moral injury, uh, especially with a lot of folks hmm. coming back from, you know, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan at the time. And they said, huh, you know, there's this kind of component that we don't really get at too much uh, that might be like, what happens when people are put into like morally compromising situations where they have to maybe do something that goes against their values or uh, are put in situations where they're really not comfortable performing a certain action, but are told to do it nonetheless. And what happens when you violate those norms or values for yourself? And that can cause a pretty big, you know, kind of rupture in your system. And interestingly enough, uh, that, you know, was kind of floated. Uh, that idea was, you know, put out there. And then it ended up not being incorporated into hmm. the current sort of diagnostic system. So I actually think that was a pretty big loss um, to actually looking at that and conceptualizing how we think about trauma and PTSD. Um, but it's just, yeah. And so that's kind of where we're at at this point. You know, we have a, a framework for how to look at it through the DSM, but then there are also, I think, lots of other frameworks that also offer valuable insights in terms of how people experience trauma that may not always get captured the best in those systems. So that moral injury, that's, that's fascinating because mm. would it, would it affect someone more deeply if it was a traumatic event that had that moral component to it? Could be. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, I, I think obvious or not, you know, some of how something is framed in its inception changes then how, or may lead to then how we treat it or look at it. So um, a lot of the um, major treatments that are out there that are kind of the type 1A treatments for PTSD, for example, exposure therapy, EMDR, you know, those types of things are great and they help people oftentimes with a lot of aspects of post-traumatic stress. Uh, but I would also say that there are uh, lots of people I've spoken to who have either gone through the treatment. Um, I did some exposure therapy myself uh, after I came back from uh, Afghanistan. And, you know, I mean, there are actually, there are absolutely benefits to doing that. And sometimes based on that framework that you're using, there are some treatment components that I think sometimes are either left out, overlooked, viewed as less important. And I think some of those moral components sometimes are in that because um, it's sort of like meaning making is not something that is in the protocol of doing EMDR, for example, you know, not to just, just picking that out of the hat, mm -hmm. but you know, so it's great. I mean, I, you know, I experienced, for example, on an anecdote, like a lot of benefit 
physiologically from doing exposure therapy, like prolonged exposure, because it was hard to go to the grocery store and be surrounded by a lot of people. And, you know, the best idea was not to go to the mall at 4 p.m. on a Friday when all the teenagers are there, you know, just bustling around. And so rather than slowly maybe, you know, finding my way just stuck in my house, now able to order groceries online, you know, and have them just delivered and never have to leave again, uh, putting yourself in situations where it gradually increases exposure to those things is was tremendously helpful. Now, at the end of the day, was that helpful in trying to make sense of some of those events? Maybe less so. So would you define both exposure therapy and EMDR? Because <clears throat> I, I got a sense from, yeah. you know, just your your, uh, your story about going to the grocery that you, you're exposing yourself right. to situations. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe like a more clinical diag- or description, yeah. but also EMDR. So I've heard it, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. So um, EMDR stands for uh, eye movement um, desensitization, desensitization and reprocessing. Okay. Um, both ideas uh, were really kind of developed around the same time. Uh, and uh, Francine Shapiro was the sort of major proponent of developing EMDR. And her idea was that basically when we go to sleep at night uh, and if you sometimes if you're a real creepo and you watch somebody sleep, uh, then you can watch their eyes. Never kind of, done that. No, never. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, and uh, but if you watch their eyes, right, like uh, the eyes in, under the eyelids will move back and forth. Sure. Um, and part of that process is um, that we've kind of linked or there's some hypotheses about that. Like that's a time when our brain is really kind of consolidating information from the day and like putting it into storage. So all that stuff that's in sort of the like the frontal area, right? That just like kind of thoughts, things that are at the forefront are kind of getting put back in the storage in some sense and being processed, if you will. And so her idea was, okay, well, let's maybe try to take that in a waking sense and we can hmm. provide some sort of bilateral stimulation, whether it's somebody watching, you know, a light, you know, sort of move back and forth uh, or holding paddles that give sensations uh, from one side of the body to the other. Uh, anything that you can, you know, I almost get the image of like an old hypnotist, you know, like, you know, <laughs> putting the the watch in front of the, the pocket watch in front of your face and going through that process. And oftentimes that protocol is done while people are talking about like a traumatic narrative or something like that. So that the goal is to provide some safety in talking about it. So that was kind of the original idea. Funnily enough, um, it's really sort of never been linked causally to that process. And so... Um, Nowadays, I think, and, and there are different proponents of this that might think different things, but really I think what a lot of the research has shown is that EMDR, those types of things, are exposure in some capacity. It may not be having you go out to the grocery store, but there's an element of like telling your story that is exposing you to it. And um, oftentimes I think that it's kind of been boiled down to that's kind of what the important component of some of that is. So the EMDR, <clears throat> you're not looking at anything that may have caused the trauma you're it's like you said light or movement and you're just you're not seeing images that are that it's it's more would you say like theoretical i don't know if that's the right word or imaginative or visual but right so that has the same process of like REM sleep that was the idea okay but it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Or at least that's kind of what the research is. Okay. To. And you've done it and did it, did it help? Or nope. No? I've never done EMDR. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did prolonged exposure for a bit. Okay. Um, but, you know, one thing I will say about that kind of like thinking about these different frameworks, not just EMDR, but also kind of the moral injury component and those kind of things that um, 
And I, I think at one point I may have pissed some researchers off doing or telling the story because it didn't, maybe it didn't fit into that framework. But um, I wrote uh, an academic paper, oh, it's probably been six, eight months or so, um, still waiting to kind of hear on whether or not it might actually get published or not. But who knows, <laughs> based on kind of the feedback. But the goal of the paper, uh, the, the call for papers in the journal was um, about like mental health professionals who had some sort of experience of their own mental health, um, you know, diagnosis or issue or that sort of thing. And, uh, and I think they referred to them as like prosumers instead of mm. consumers. Uh, and so they thought, oh, well, it might be interesting to hear some stories or frameworks from mental health professionals who kind of bridge this gap, if you will, between you know, what the clientele of the world might be experiencing, but then also this other side of the mental health professional, hopefully giving some bridging component to that. And so um, I think similar, I think, you know, in your podcast, uh, in the last one we did, I think I, I mentioned, I told this story about, uh, you know, being part of like the Fort Hood shooting in 2009 and then being deployed like three weeks afterwards, you know, for a year, which was Jeez, yeah. lots of fun. And it's interesting that, um, so I kind of talked about that story and then doing some exposure work after I got back from my deployment. And I went in and did this work. Uh, and it was like the end of this process of like recording your narrative, playing it back through the week, uh, exposing yourself to anxiety and new situations like going to the grocery store. And then just kind of doing that over and over and talking about it and then rating scales of like how you're feeling. And I remember one day, um, and I, I do, I think that was a, a good experience for me to do. And one day I went in and um, the tape recorder broke on the the recorder that we were going to be playing back my narrative uh, from. And I remember, um, despite all that, uh, the, one of the only things I really remember about that treatment was this moment uh, or these couple where my therapist kind of stepped out of his role uh, to engage me a little bit more humanly outside of the protocol. And so this tape recorder broke and he said, we were kind of like, you know, talking about it as he was working on it a little bit. And, and somehow we got on the topic of like, oh, like how frustrating it is and how like demoralizing it is to, to try to fix something that is broken or that feels like it's broken. And he kind of like glanced up, like in this moment, like the light bulb moment came on and he said, oh my gosh, that must be like how you've been feeling about all this. Like that, you know, like we're going through this whole treatment process trying to fix something that feels like it's broken. And I was like, yes, like, yeah, these experiences, right? Like make you feel like you're sort of alienated from other people and it's hard. And you're trying to put the pieces back together in a way that feels somewhat normal again. And, uh, and it was like those kind of, like that moment was one of probably the most connecting moments that we had together, despite maybe not in spite of, you know, all these other treatment components, which were great, don't get me wrong, but there's also something really powerful about that connecting moment outside of just doing something to me or, you know, telling me to go off and listen to my narrative some more, which is powerful and helpful. And I think those, that kind of like connecting piece was extremely important. Do you think it was the fact that <clears throat> that person had a little bit of understanding and that you maybe didn't feel alone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because what happens when you experience trauma, right? It's like the sense of 
alienation that occurs you know that yeah yeah i've like had this experience that somehow disconnects me from other people like they can't know what it's like to experience this awful thing that's happened or whatnot and you know at some level subject subjectively that's true we can't ever know truly perhaps other people's experiences but you know i mean i I hear that from veterans and other people who've experienced trauma all the time is there's a sense of just like disconnecting alienating feeling that like i've just been somehow separated from the rest of the human race and so yeah for somebody to verbally express something not saying like i get it but like giving you the indication that they get it (laughs) by like how they capture that in language was really important and i left there thinking oh okay this guy kind of gets it right yeah we've come to this like meeting point in that that's not just us pushing the button on the tape recorder i had read something i think it may have been like southwest airlines and their customer satisfaction manual or mm. procedure or whatever so i'm not trying to relate a frustrated airline customer to ptsd do it yeah, it's okay <laughs> but they said that the first thing that customer wants on the other end of the phone is understanding before they want resolution yes yeah oh yeah no that could be the motto of how therapy should work too Hmm. yeah it's interesting right because most a lot of people come in and you know i I say this somewhat facetiously but sometimes people come in in our day and age and are like all right well here's a problem uh so fix that thing for me (laughs) (laughs) and i'm like yeah, sure. Um, but people actually, anecdotally, uh, I don't think people actually want that. Because also, um, uh, I was talking to my significant other recently who had been reading uh, this book called um, I Think You Should See Someone. Uh, you know, it, it, I think it's a recent book that came out. And I think she made a point in the book that, like, you know, people come in and say, like, all right, help me fix this thing. Like it's a doing thing. Like you do something to me, apply some treatment, but then people actually don't want that, you know, like, cause then they're like, don't tell me what to do. You know, like, there's actually like almost a process of like, don't try to contain my freedom, right. To, you know, tell me to do this thing. And oftentimes when people get advice or those sorts of things, they usually dig their heels in more in doing the opposite thing. Because I think there's also, I never think it's just someone coming in saying, I need this thing to go away. You know, there's also, because there's a lot of challenge in that. As soon as I end up in a different place in my life, that's a big change from what I'm familiar with. And we humans avoid unfamiliarity like the plague. (laughs) That is for sure. Yeah. So that's not to say that people like want to stay in their, you know, Trump traumatic experiences or those types of things. But, you know, there's also something I think really deeply familiar about that pain too right because if i don't know what's on the other side of the door but i know this pain is really awful but i know at least what it's like like what it's going to feel like all the time and there's the possibility that those the other side holds something even worse then nine times out of ten i think most people say well we could hold off on going through that door at the moment yeah I mean, these things are cliches because they're true, right? right? And the cliche <laughs> that's popping into my head is the devil you know versus the devil mm-hmm. you don't. Yes. And I've seen it, experienced it, lived it, you know, like relationships, for example. Mm-hmm. You're in an unhealthy relationship, but it's like, I know what's going to happen and it sucks, but yeah. the unknown, I don't know, could it be worse? Could it be better? So right. I totally get it. Yeah. 
And I would say that's at the heart of really the majority of issues, like treatment issues that people come into therapy for, if I can broadly say that. I mean, is this notion of vulnerability, risk-taking. Uh, I love talking about therapy like it's an experiment we're doing together. Because, yeah, experiments are risky. Mm-hmm. Caring about people is risky. Taking, you know, vulnerable steps to open up to people is risky. I mean, yeah. And if you are feeling, if you're alienated in a trauma, right, if you feel disconnected from people, God, it sure is hard to take the risk to try to reconnect. Yeah. Um, did you get a chance to talk to Dr. Phil Beaver at the podcast oh. party? Sorry. No. <laughs> Dr. Phil. <laughs> yeah. No, I have not, in fact. <laughs> yeah. um, he, he's, uh, um, he works at the Daniels College of, College of Business at DU. Oh. Huh. And so he's the professor of analytics. But he was in the Pentagon at 9-11, oh. on 9-11. And sure. so that whole episode was talking about data and things like that. But, oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I didn't even ask him about any traumatic effects from that. Sure. Um, but uh, you don't have to answer this one, but like how close were you when you mentioned Fort Hood, like uh-huh. physically close to that? Were you 10 feet from the shooter? Wow. Yeah. That's close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wow. Close. And then three weeks later, you're in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Pretty close, yeah. I think, you know, it happened on November 5th. I think we deployed December 7th is when we left. And what was that three weeks like? Ugh. Uh, I think it was a, a ragtag bunch of people trying to, like, put some pieces back together and figure out what the fuck are we doing, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, we got, I think... I think we got like a day or two off, if you will, like right after. And then, you know, part of, we were there for pre-mobilization. And so it's all the, you know, uh, process preparing folks to get deployed. And that was the whole, that's where all that shooting started was in a soldier readiness processing. So it was like people getting all their medical checkups and administrative stuff in line and making sure they're, SGLI was in place and their ID card was still up to date and all that kind of stuff. And that's where that happened. Mm -hmm. So like people still had to finish all that stuff, check all the boxes, but then also do the other training components too, like, you know, vehicle rollover, uh, you know, drills and making sure you could spot IEDs and, you know, those kind of things. So whatever, like kind of like major mission requirement things you needed to do, like you still had to check all those training boxes as well. So, and we had just gotten there. That was, I think we got there November 4th. Like we rolled up on the bus from Kansas City and down to Fort Hood and there we were. And so, yeah, we still had really 100% of ground to cover (laughs) for all the training component. And, uh, you know, as part of a sort of mental health unit, um, there are not a whole bunch of them. So, you know, I remember that there was a, you know, course there were other units involved uh you know i think there were three or four of us down there but our unit in particular you know we kind of have this general pop up in front of us and say something like well uh you know it's really not great timing essentially this has happened because you know there are not a whole lot of mental health units out there so we really sure would be swell if you guys would still be willing to deploy and i remember there was one moment where this won't come as any shock to you but um 
this general said in front of this whole auditorium of people, like, if you don't feel like you can still go, just stand up and walk over there in the corner so we can identify you and do that. How many people do you think stood up? I'm going to say zero. That big goose egg. Absolutely. Yeah, no one was going to stand up. And I talked to people later in my unit who were like, you know, if they would have gone that about that a little bit differently, like, and not made it such like a public shaming process, like, we probably would have said, eh, we'll hold off, you know, till the next round. Because there weren't really a lot of people to replace us, so... Uh, or who weren't already kind of on their drawdown period and who had, you know, been deployed more recently or that kind of thing. So, yeah. So the, I guess to answer your question, like the next three weeks kind of look like, well, you know, we had some break, um, you know, a day or two to do that. And then, yeah, we got to get back to the back to the training. So the days were just kind of full of, you know, doing army stuff. And then, uh, you know, at nighttime, I think we tried to get together as a group and, um have some connecting moments you know i think some of the most important times that i remember out of that really were like you know we were in this big bay you know with like kids bunks you know up there and we pulled off these like single person mattresses and tossed them on the ground and we had a colonel there who just like ordered pizza and we'd just sit down on these mattresses on the floor with everybody and get together and shoot the shit reminisce you know talk about having a hard time and i think those were some of the most like powerfully healing moments to be a part of knowing that you're kind of part of that community and have a good support system. So what was your role in Afghanistan? You mentioned mental health. So was that your primary? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, so not combat, not. Um... Yeah, no, I mean like, yeah, I'm not like sniping people in the okay. mountains or anything. Uh, <laughs> we uh, are unit at the time. I think we were the first, I don't want to misquote this, but I think we were the first like mental health unit that ever put boots on ground in Afghanistan that were not like part of like onesies, twosies kind of people attached to units. Like we were like the thing, you know, like putting boots on ground. So we had to build up all the services that were there. So we were in Southern Afghanistan with Kandahar being kind of the main base. And I was part of one of many prevention teams as they're called to that kind of spread out among these like small outposts among the Southern half or part of Afghanistan to sort of build up services. So we ended up sort of in some sense, getting like attached to bigger units, even though we were still technically part of our own unit. So we were kind of this um, kind of subsidiary, if you will, of units. So we were like attached to like up armored infantry units and EOD units. But I used to travel with them all the time. So like people who are looking for bombs, they were like, well, I kind of need to get to this smaller outpost over here. And they're like, well, this is the ride we got. So like hop on and let's do our thing. You know? Yeah. And you have, you know, infantry folks who are like there to try to earn their, you know, expert infantry badge or combat infantry badge who are like looking for firefights and, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, so I remember one instance we had a, a guy, we were riding along to this outpost and he was like, over the radio, like came in that some people were being engaged and they were like, you mind? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Let's do it. You know, like let's drive in. So yeah, like we weren't looking, well, I wasn't looking for like a firefight, but certainly, uh, you know, found ourselves involved in those kind of things so yeah wow good times so the the fort hood shooting was that ever covered in any military manual for like your group or anybody else like i'm guessing that that was such an outlier in terms of an event that did anybody know what to do in the aftermath of that (laughs) uh do they now 
even, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, does anyone, truly? You know? Right. I mean, no, the short answer is no, I think. You know, I think service provision kind of looked like saying, after the training day is over, we have, like, uh, some providers or the chaplain available at the chapel uh, who you can go see if you want to. I don't, I don't think the service was heavily utilized. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that could be due to a lot of reasons, but I think there was like a sense, well, as an, as an anecdote, I think for me, it felt more important to sort of be with my unit as a group, as a team, um, than or, or I was like exhausted from the training day, you know, to go talk about my feelings, you know, like, yeah, great. Uh, and it felt more important to connect with my community than it did to seek the professional help, if you will. Right. And I think that was actually, I'm, I wouldn't have changed that given the option. Did you lose anybody close to you on that day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think we had, we kind of had a sister unit that was deploying to Iraq with us there. And out of our two units, we lost five. And we were only a smaller unit of probably 50, I think, at the time. Anyways, that's what small medical detachments mm-hmm. were like. But, yeah, one of my good friends uh, who was sitting next to me um, got shot. And, yeah, um, we kind of, I think, well, I can't speak for everybody, but, you know, I think a lot of us thought it was kind of a, a drill when it happened because um, you can't process that kind of information you know that it's too shattering of a worldview you know to have that happen at the time like oh someone's shooting at us on a military base in my own uniform yeah like that doesn't there's no uh box to put that in right at the time and so there's kind of this big decoding error that happens where you're like oh wait that's box a is not going into box a like hold on wait and you keep trying to put it in box a (laughs) you know until finally it's like you're it's you know you get confronted with something that's too stark that's like oh okay that does not go in box a you know um so it took me i mean i think it only lasted really for like 15 minutes but like it took me a decent amount of time to realize oh hey this is not a drill and i went through multiple instances during that period which some people might call somewhat delusional (laughs) Um, and I would define in this case, a delusion, right. That's sort of an idea that's not open for debate. And so for me, it was not open for debate or question that you're safe on a military base and people don't shoot at you here. And then suddenly, you know, there's too much evidence stacking up the other way that was like, Oh, wait, it was not until like, I saw a guy who got shot like point blank in the face that I was like, Oh, okay. We can't fake that. That's not something that paintballs will do. Which is kind of what I assumed was happening was paintballs. Wow. <clears throat> well, and I've listened to a couple of uh, survival books, and they talk about people that are in life and death situations, mm-hmm. and it's that processing of that event that yeah. it's so far beyond any bit of imagination. Like you were saying, delusion is probably a, a valid word there yeah. too. It's like what is going on here like to talk about people in airplane crashes where they're still buckled in and the exit's right there and they just don't get it right because it's so remote like 
planes usually don't crash, right? right? <laughs> yeah, and if you <clears throat> and if you lived in that world all the time, that like if you were in constant expectation of oh no, this plane's going to crash, you wouldn't get on the plane. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like you have to sort of live in, you know, a bit of a. Um, there's an author that kind of refers to it as like the absolutisms of everyday life right you kind of have to live in this idea of this world that like those kind of things don't happen right like in a ridiculous scale like i know the sun could blow up <laughs> you know yeah. like it could happen but i still don't i don't wake up every day thinking like oh the sun still rose today how wonderful right like i just assume it will and that's how i live my life and it's yeah. probably healthy that i do that <laughs> It's the only way you can function. Right, exactly. Because otherwise you'd never get in bed. You'd be paralyzed Yeah. to do anything. So, yeah, it's not, mm, I don't think it really, yeah, I, don't, I think there's a level of quote-unquote delusion that's probably important to yeah. to be built into, into everyday life. Yeah. Well, the, the risk we take unwillingly every single day, several times a day, is jumping mm-hmm. in a car. Right. And... I asked this question to a friend. I said, well, like 3000 people died on nine 11, <clears throat> but I go, guess how many people like died in traffic accidents last year. Oh, and it was like, scene, I'm sure. Yeah. It was like 60,000 yeah. people. Right. Yeah. And you think about that and like, I'm going to jump in the car and get home. And it's way more likely that I'm going to yeah. get punched out driving home. Yeah. than I'll ever experience a, a shooter or combat or the meteor right. hitting. But I don't even really think about that. No. And that's probably good. Yeah. <laughs> because if I did think about that and I started running the numbers on like I-25 and the drivers and that statistical probability, it's Ugh, like, yeah. I probably wouldn't get in a car. No. Yeah. After that one day, that, what, that snowstorm <clears throat> earlier in the year, I think DPD reported that there were like 99 accidents over the course of like three hours. Yeah. Like that big snowstorm. And AAA came back later and they were like, this is definitely your fault. <laughs> Drivers, you know, like, <laughs> fair enough, you know? Um, yeah. Wow. Um, so did you sort of self-diagnose that you had PTSD? Did you know, or was it just part of seeing other people? How did that come to, I mean, obviously you're in a horrific experience, sure. so it'd be a natural thought, but how did, how did your diagnosis come about? Um, I mean, probably when I went to go see, to seek out counseling initially, because, you know, you're kind of stuck in a system where, you know, like I, when I see people in my practice, uh, I have the, what I might call the privilege to not have to diagnose people. Mm. Um, there's kind of a, a joke out there that's like, you know, diagnosis is really only good for like insurance reimbursement kind of. <laughs> and i say that somewhat humorously because uh you know like it i don't i don't mean to be too ranty about this but you know like if you're in the medical field it matters what diagnosis you get because you know that could really inform the kind of treatment that you might get i think that's significantly less true in therapy um even though we maybe want it to be that way um, because at the end of the day, I think we know the most important things about therapy are the, that the therapist is a, like, you're able to build a good relationship. Both people kind of hope it works or believe that it works. Um, 
there's a sense of responsiveness, like you're not just taking a cookie cutter approach to everyone, like you're actually interested in the person's experience. And then like a pretty good amount of variance accounted for the outcome in therapy is what I say in my classrooms is all that other shit that happens outside of therapy. And it's like the majority of the variance, like 40% by some statistics, right? So, so, you know, like if you said that in a medical situation, like, you know what, like, we're just going to shoot for whatever here and just like hope that whatever else happens out there really helps you out. You know? like, <laughs> no, like you'd get, you'd be fired immediately. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think people come in, sometimes there's this discrepancy thinking like, oh, my therapist is going to, you know, just immediately know the thing. And they have this treatment ready. They're going to, you know, make the diagnosis and then A equals B equals C, right? And then, like, C is going to be the treatment that, like, follows naturally from that thing. And I don't think that's always the case. Um, because the goal is to build, like, a good relationship that's healing. Um, so, uh, and I, I don't mean to paint that as so, like, wishy-washy and, you know, woo-woo, you know, or whatnot. Because I do think that there's a lot of value in that process of being responsible being flex or being responsive and flexible to what the person brings in and having you know some mastery over kind of what you're doing the technique of it all but yeah at the end of the day you know i think the the diagnosis piece is really to me less important than like the person sitting mm. in front of me like that informs what i do rather than saying like oh well you know you you have ptsd versus you know this uh depression right so that's really going to change how I treat you now. It's like, well, probably not. Um, so I have the privilege of not having to diagnose people typically. And I, I try to veer away from that unless they're really kind of looking for that kind of thing coming in. A lot of people are not. Um, insurance companies are, reimbursement companies are, because that's how they establish service. But uh, for me, yeah, I think in terms of when I got the diagnosis, I think, yeah, it's probably upon return, um, you know, for what it's worth mm-hmm. well and it's not like it's a broken bone right, right? or a tendon or something where you can move it and flex it mm-hmm. and with the 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 brain and and the emotions you know you said woo woo and you know sort of whatever but right. if anybody has a different expectation i think they're setting themselves up for failure right mm-hmm. because how do you know um you're better i don't think you could ever be cured of whatever, right. but how could you be better uh-huh. until you're faced with that circumstance? It's not like getting up off the sofa and going, Oh, my leg feels pretty good right. today. You know, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you've got to go out to the grocery store. You've got to see that X in, in person and go, Oh shit. I lived through that. That right. wasn't, yeah. Yeah. The, what I anticipated was not as bad as, you know, I had imagined. Right. And it, yeah. So that I think you're getting at that functioning piece, right? Like how, Maybe one metric would be how rigid or narrowly does my, or how, how rigid or narrow does my life become as a result of this thing? Like how capable am I to sort of adapt to new challenges, take on, take risks, be flexible, like those kind of things. I think that's been probably one of my favorite definitions of like a good outcome of something is how, and like, am I able to approach fulfilling you know, important things in my life or to, you know, keep commitments or, you know, be flexible in the face of struggle. Um, and, and I think that matters. Like, I'll give you kind of a weird example based on what you were saying. Like uh, a couple, what is it? It's hard as a new year now. Um, yeah. Early December, um, 
so my partner and I scuba dive and uh, we go down to Mexico because it's a direct flight now from Denver, which is great. And uh, it's pretty affordable uh, on Frontier, so that's great. And uh, so we fly down there and I really, I cave dive, like we cave dive, um, which don't ask. No, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Speaking of terrifying, um, yeah. And so we cave dive, and two days before we left this year, um, I slipped on the ice as we were talking about from the snow that never melted this year, and I thought broke my ankle at the time, and I was pissed about it because I was like, <laughs> I fell, and the first thing I thought of was just anger because i was like why now you know like why did i have to do this before like two days before our trip rather than being like oh my ankle is in a massive amount of pain you know and it was one of those where i i went i waited until the night before we left to go to the er finally because i thought you know if i don't know for sure it's possible that it's not broken and i can just pretend like it's not real <laughs> in the meantime and i went in and the doctor like gasped when she saw my ankle and i was like oh great it's broken but it was only sprained, which was great. Just a really bad one, you know, but because if it was broken, I definitely wouldn't have been able to justify diving on it. But we went down there and, uh, you know, hydrotherapy is like one, a big component of like rehabilitating. Yeah. And so it actually worked out really well to be in there. Uh, and like, I wasn't like really kicking hard or anything, but, you know, like moving my ankle around in the water was like actually really great. And so I kind of frame it the same way, you know, like if we view the thing as broken, and it's just like something that like I am and then somebody needs to do something to fix me. I have zero account, like responsibility in that process. Mm. And like, there's no reason to dive on it then. But if it's, you know, if to, you know, use the metaphor, right. If it's just sprained, right. And like you can move it. Like the goal is really just for it to become more functional over time. Like, can I still do the things I enjoy doing? Is my life still fulfilling is, you know, can I still adapt? Uh, and if that's the case, then great. You know, that's what I hope therapy often facilitates for people. And I think diagnosing, if you will, puts people in that framework of broken or not. Do I have it or do I not mm. kind of thing? And what's the threshold to meet that requirement? And so I think that sometimes that points us towards very different paths of then how do we go about addressing this issue that came up. That, that sense. it does. Thank you. Um, and that, that pisses me off more than anything else. <laughs> Going back to the slipping on the ice yeah, <laughs> is like, I get it. Like if I just slip at random, right. but what makes me so mad is when I'm taking baby steps and being careful Oh yeah, and I still slip mm -hmm. and then I just start punching at the air and like cursing. <laughs> but, um. Oh yeah. <laughs> and in men's dress shoes, which are having zero tack on the bottom of them, it's just yeah. a disaster waiting to happen. All exactly. The time. I've slipped on like the carpet in my dress shoes. Yeah. So the ice was just like, you know, doom ready. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> <laughs> so um, going back to your, your first visit to the grocery store, to your oh, yeah. exposure, um, what was that day or what was that night like? And what how long was the preparation? And oh, what were you thinking about going into that store to expose yourself to that? What was that like? Awful. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, I didn't even go in the store. That was not the goal. The store, the goal was to go to like the first parking spot furthest away that I felt some anxiety come up and just park there and wait for it to subside, which whether it's five minutes or five hours and just let it do its thing and then leave and go home and then come back the next day and do it again. And what were you like at home 
getting ready to get in the car to go drive to the parking space. What was that like? Yeah. At home, it was okay. And, and it was like a, but it was like a progressive build of anxiety on the way because I knew what was coming. Um, so yeah, I would say, you know, at home, I was like, okay, we're going to, just going to get in the car. It's going to be fine. Not a big deal. And then I get in my car and I was like, hmm, okay. Yep. It's, we're still okay, but we're going to get there. And then I like, you know, I like know the streets I have to turn on to get to the grocery store. And it's like constantly predicting, you know, like how much worse it's going to be as I turn the corner. And then I go down this street and then I see the grocery store. And by the time you get there, it's like, oh shit, you know, this is going to be really unpleasant. But it helped to know that like, no, I don't have to go in. You know, I can just park in this parking spot and wait, which really is, it serves the function it's supposed to. Like you're supposed to be experiencing the anxiety, exposing yourself to it, and then to get through it and then go home. Uh, and come back the next day and do it again and for however long it takes and then maybe move up a couple spaces and then you maybe sit outside the you know front door and then maybe you make it into the lobby at some point and then maybe you buy a candy bar and then maybe you buy some milk you know <laughs> in the back of the store or something but yeah it can be a lengthy process depending on how um kind of how long it takes to do that and it's i don't think it's like an issue of will you know kind of thing like obviously you have to like will yourself to go do it in the first place but you don't want to just go into the grocery store because if you panic and flee and like run away and say, Oh God, this is too terrifying. You've only told yourself, Oh no. Like if I can't do this, what else can't I do? And it just kind of generalizes to other areas of your life. So if I tried to do the mall right at 4 PM on Friday and couldn't do it, shocker. Um, then suddenly I might say, Oh, well, I don't know if I could even come to the mall at, on Tuesday at 10 a.m. when just old people are here shopping, you know? <laughs> like, then it's even, look, I don't know if I can do that either, right? And it just poses constant questions about how capable I am of doing that. And then sometimes people just choose to say, yeah, well, I guess I don't need to do that. I can just find some other way of, you know, doing I can just order my groceries online or Amazon delivers to my house in, you know, 30 seconds. So I don't even need to go to the store anymore. And then somehow, but that's not the point, right? Because then, you know, and this is, again, this is my value, right? But then you kind of see this like shrinking, the center of gravity shrinking around you, this like area of influence where, oh, the mall used to be in there uh, or the grocery store, but now this concentric circle starts shrinking in around me. And now suddenly my life is much smaller than it used to be. And maybe that's the definition of like functioning, if you will, around something. So one thing I didn't hear you say, and I just wanted to clarify, I didn't hear you talking negatively about yourself, about the anxiety building towards the grocery store. Was that part of your personality or did you have to coach yourself out of the negative self-talk for lack of a better term? Mm -hmm. Because what I I didn't hear you say is like, this is so dumb. I shouldn't be feeling (laughs) this, right? Yeah. You know, I'd like to say that it's because I've acquired some superpower of like mental health professional prosumer thing, you know, where I just don't have to contend with that. But uh, or that like I'm, you know, I knew like, oh, it's totally OK that I am experiencing this. Um, I don't think that's true, uh, actually. Uh, I'm no stranger to critical self-talk. Uh, some people have told me that I'm a pathological introspector. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a strong self-flagellating <clears throat> super ego, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I think honestly at that point I was too, 
maybe too worn out, worn down, kind of at my wit's end process to care anymore about whether or not it looks sexy if I were doing this or not. <laughs> you know, like I've just reached to a place where like I had just sat on my couch like at home for like two months, like looking at the wall, like when I got home. From Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah. And so that happened and I was like, Ugh. And, you know, and I was probably just in this kind of weird quasi, it felt like this was a weird quasi dream state as I kind of think back on it, you know, like I'm sure I did, I did things, you know, but like, yeah, my, my center of gravity was definitely super small at that point. And I thought, you know what, I probably should, I don't know, live my life, you know, like do something, <laughs> you know, here instead of like sitting in this just constant spiraling narrative of like trauma all day, which was hard, like getting off you're talking about like the anxiety of like going to the grocery store, like the anxiety of going out, like going to sort of quote unquote seek help at the time. That was probably where the most critical self-talking anxiety, et cetera, came in. Once I'd made it, it was like, okay, I'm here. Like I can do the thing or, you know, try, but you know, getting there in the first place, I think was really tough. So were you, <clears throat> were you discharged from the army when you came back? Mm -mm. Okay, so just yep. your rotation, your deployment was over for that time. Yeah. And how hard of a, how hard of a, a break or a transition was that? Because you went from, did you go from Afghanistan to then a base, then home, or was it like a direct flight? You got off the plane and you're home. <laughs> well, yeah, we did a, um, a demobilization, the you know opposing end of the pre-mobilization uh, in uh, Washington, Joint Base Lewis McCord. I lived in Wisconsin at the time, mm. and yeah, so I think we were there for week week and a half something like that <clears throat> and then yeah it was like just a flight home and i stepped off my little puddle jumper in appleton wisconsin and you know it was a five minute drive from my house <laughs> wow and what time of year was that uh i think we i think it was i think it was probably around the same time i mean kind of november december time frame Something like that. So cold and gray. And... Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's <laughs> so... pretty much like from September on to May in, you know, the <clears throat> upper Midwest. <laughs> yeah, it was chilly. Would it have been easier if you were on base and surrounded by other people that had the shared experience, even if you weren't talking about the 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 PTSD or the anxiety, mm -hmm. if you just were around other people that sort of, you know, same uniforms like you might kind of get it but like would the camaraderie or the 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 friendship have helped probably um yeah i mean because that's i think how we ended up surviving if you will quote unquote our deployment honestly uh there were you know i was with a uh, uh this you know like i said this prevention team of like i was the the ncoic of this you know, prevention team, the sergeant there with that team. Why is it called prevention? Um, uh, the differentiation is the prevention versus, um, oh, what's the term I'm looking for? Like basically like treatment team, which means that you're not sort of attached to the main like hospital or treatment place. So Kandahar was our, where our command was located okay. at. And then they had a clinic that was there that they that functioned out of the main hospital or so, uh, at the because that was a NATO base or is a NATO base in Kandahar. And then we as 
like four person teams like spread out like shot down through these other small outposts to provide like kind of austere services to folks who are a little bit further out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> so like the like kandahar at the time was like i think it was like a nato base of like ten thousand people like it was huge and our uh, we were stationed at i think the name has changed uh last time i looked but fob ramrod uh no yeah all the all the super troopers references there for you um, we definitely never yeah um so so fob ramrod and i think at the time when we got there it was only i think it was like a mile and a half around of just like sandbags and there were like 400 people there so you know it was like it was a tiny place yeah and um yeah, and we kind of went in, and I don't know how much they really wanted us to be there. Uh, I mean, part of the mission of the prevention team is to, like, develop good relationships with, like, the command so that they actually want you there. Because at any point in time, the command can be like, uh, we don't want you here, get out. Even if you have the backing of the Surgeon General, you know, saying that it's good that mental health st- you know, like staff are here. They could be like, mm, we don't, for whatever reason, you know, we make up, like, this is not going to be good. So, yeah, we, you know, like, operated out of a small, like, you know 10 foot tent with a shower curtain in the middle you know to separate into two different rooms for a while confidentiality was uh, super high on the priority list yeah. at that point you know <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that was uh, like kind of our thing and i had like two people under me and then a psychiatrist there who was an officer um and uh yeah and that was just our our gig to set up services try to provide for the whatever units were there at the time or wanted to come through and then we also, in our situation, covered down on two smaller, or three smaller outposts that, like, some of the smallest firing teams would, like, rotate in and out of, hmm. like, when they needed to do, like, laundry once a week or something. So, yeah, but those, those were really shitty conditions, like those small outposts. We kind of drove through for, like, a day or two, like, once every two weeks, so. Yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt. I was just curious no, no, about yeah, the, the terminology, but yeah, I think I derailed you from talking about the camaraderie piece oh, coming yeah, back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it was kind of an interesting conundrum because, well, uh, I mean, yeah, because with that, I think it was really helpful to be with my unit or people from it, you know, who had had, you know, similar experiences being there during that situation and could then, we could kind of find solace in one another as we, tried to focus on doing job while we were there on our way back though there's a weird paradox that occurs because you're going to this um, demobilization to like turn in your gear out process all that kind of stuff but then got to go through like a quick screening for a lot of things and you know so you, so you have this group of soldiers right who's been gone for a year and they come back and they're like well you know we're going to put you through these screenings that are mostly self-report and if you like flag on something that is concerning, then you get to stay a little bit longer from going home <laughs> and go through whatever other additional screenings we put you through. And similar to like the, you know, general saying, how many of you feel like you, you know, are good to go or not? Like Do everyone... we have homework this weekend? Right. <laughs> right. No, absolutely not. You've never mentioned the word homework. Uh, yeah. Like nobody... <laughs> Nobody, unless they had like some made like a physical injury or something where like their knee was broken, where they literally couldn't hide it. You know, they were like, no, things are totally fine. Send me home, you know, because people just want to go home. The then further problem, you know, as an aside, is then that 
if people decide that they want to seek some sort of like treatment later, it's a lot harder to get because they're like, well, where's the evidence and history of this? But it doesn't take into account like the bind that people are sort of in those situations and having it initially identified. Oh yeah. Good times. <laughs> I, I didn't serve, but to me that sounds like just a beautifully awful piece of bureaucracy yeah. that I've experienced <laughs> in other companies. Oh yeah. Right? No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I do a lot of work with uh, like law enforcement first responders now and, and like this, you know, like a paramilitary environment and it's not terribly different. You know, yeah. you still see a lot of the same cultural effects happen where people are like, well, we'd like to seek services, but you know, who knows how that's going to be viewed and is that going to affect my career? And, you know, even if it's not like in an official capacity, like we're not going to punish you administratively for that, but you know, like you hear like, Oh, maybe I'd like to move up the ranks and someone has just heard on the you know the board that oh yeah this person's maybe going through this struggle are they really going to be the best leader you know like knowing that they kind of have struggles in this area and and those things never get put on paper but they definitely influence I'm sure because we're all human um, you know how people are viewed and you know what we think they might be good or not for yeah <clears throat> so one of the other questions I wanted to ask you is I've been so I listen to Tim Ferriss all the time and he talks yeah. for PTSD and like, uh, is it, um, psilocybin and, uh-huh. uh, LSD and like the hallucinogenics. Is that mm-hmm. right? Do you, and this is not to put you on the spot, no, like okay. opinion yeah. one way or the other. What are, are you a drug user? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking for a friend. No, for um, sure. Yeah. Pause the tape. It's fine. <laughs> like do you have experience with that like research or like you just your opinion on it? i'm just curious about your opinion on it yeah um yeah i've never i've never um done any sort of like medication related or um like psychedelic use like on a on personally you know in handling any of that um i've had a lot of other good experiences that i think were really healing for me in that process but um yeah i mean certainly it's really kind of a new frontier area uh, for like research and, you know, those sorts of things. The VA, I think has headed a lot of that kind of stuff as well. Like they're great for research uh, type things. Like they're always on the forefront of those sorts. Um, but yeah, the whole like, you know, LSD, MDMA um, has been a big move. We even actually have some providers here in Denver, mental health providers who do some, like psychedelic assisted psychotherapy treatment. Um, and that's becoming, obviously that's more in legislation now and those kind of things. I think they de- decriminalized recently in Colorado, at least like the mushroom mm-hmm. uh, use. Uh, so, you know, I mean, certainly, um, I'm not an expert on this by any means, but I think there's been some really good, uh, outcomes that people have started seeing, which is kind of fun because this was like a big, you know, research well it started to become one like back in the 60s uh, for probably various reasons yeah <laughs> but like psychologists and like researchers were just like doing experiments on themselves um taking psychedelics and those sorts of things and so, and then you know suddenly it started becoming criminalized and they're like oh well maybe we shouldn't do this anymore in public you know so um you know none of that quote-unquote research really got published or put out there in the world and so it was kind of just like covered up for a little bit and now it's kind of making its rounds back as i think people 
look at that and see like well because you know i mean and not to poo poo on psychiatric medication but i think what we're learning about psychiatric medication is that in a lot of cases it may not be as effective as we once hoped or thought it might be um side effects are pretty significant for people depending on the kind of medication they're taking and you know and certainly this we're not quite in this place yet where i think someone would be like well go do some lsd instead of like seeing your psychiatrist but <laughs> like but we're seeing definitely that there's an interesting frontier area where you know that could be an interesting thing to pursue in the future it could definitely or at least warrants more research more discussion sure you know and people seem to have had some pretty good results with very minimal side effects so, and I was just asking for my own yeah. education because I've been seeing it kind of education. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, the other reason I wanted to re-record this and kind of dive in deeper with you is that um, in the event, somebody's actually struggling and that was the purpose of that whole first yeah. interview. And um, I think, uh, the fact that we're still, that we're sitting here having this conversation is a testament to what's capable and what people have experienced and what they can yeah. come through on the other side. Right. Sure. Yeah. I've had relationships fail. I haven't witnessed combat and I haven't seen somebody killed in front of me, but, um, you know, the fact that we're sitting here if nothing else, I just want people to have like a sense of hope that no matter what they've experienced, what they're going through, it's not going to be easy, but you can come out the other side. Yeah. The nerdy part of me wants to say that like the vast majority of people who experience traumatic events, um, and it's some, I mean, I've seen stats as high as like, or as low as like 7%, you know, like who experience like a traumatic event, quote unquote, um, don't go on or, or only that percentage of people go on to develop maybe some sort of post-traumatic stress the vast majority of people go on to develop what's called like post-traumatic growth um, the sense of more having like a more enlivened kind of life uh, feeling like more immediate with their relationships yeah there's a big component of that and again it comes back to like we really struggle to define the metric of like what success is, what a better looking life is, you know, like statistics are really good for saying like, Oh, if there's like a linear path to a goal, then awesome. You know, we can hit that, you know, or, or look for it. But if there are like intangible things or things that might not quite match up with that linear, that one line that goes right to the top of Olympus, you know, then, then that gets murkier, right? And it's harder to then start defining like what success looks like, what meaning looks like, what you know, good relationships or satisfaction looks like. Those are wiggly, slippery terms that are hard to define. That are usually just very individual for the person. Um, you know, thinking about my you know sort of own experience through this process, I think um, if I can really say anything that was like the most impactful looking back on years. I mean, this has been, I think this last November was like, it's been 10 years you know, mm. since that happened, which seems crazy <laughs> to me. Uh, and I actually got to meet up with that Colonel. I was telling you about who bought pizza for everybody um, only just a few months ago at a conference. And we were kind of reminiscing and chatting a little bit. 
and uh yeah and just the fact we're like oh my gosh it's been you know 10 years it's so long and yet some of that feels like yesterday some of it feels like it's day to day it's not like that ever goes away you know and nor do i think that people would truly want it to in all cases right like i don't know if i wish that i could delete those memories i wouldn't yeah it's kind of defined who i've become right yeah and also unfamiliarity i don't know who i would have become otherwise yeah um Maybe I wouldn't have liked that person as much, <laughs> or maybe I would, you know. But again, that again assumes that linear path, right? That like, oh, if nothing bad ever happens to me, then I'm just on this straight path to whatever good things you know life holds. But I think the trauma um, is really built into human existence. It's not, it's not just stuff that happens to us here and there, right? It's kind of like built into the nature of humanity in some sense. Like loss, change, all those things are traumatic. Um, in some capacity and you know what's given i think what's been kind of an interesting platform with my experience is that like oftentimes people view it as like it's the the capital t trauma you know like the big t because it's such a you know it's got a lot of stimulus value as an event you know people see like oh it's mass shooting on a military base you know it's all this big stuff and so somehow that like that gives me more voice to like speak about what trauma is. And I'm like, well, but I, you know, it's all contextual. And so, you know, for me, I might've had a certain experience around that event, but all everybody involved that day experienced it differently. And some people probably did better or worse with it, however you want to define it. Um, and it's complicated. So, you know, like the biggest, <clears throat> uh, most powerful experiences I've had around it have been really in connecting in vulnerable relationships that, um, help me feel like I can expand my center of gravity in some way. Like I remember, for better or worse, um, you know, like I, I talked to a family member years later after the event happened. I'd been home. It was probably around like the anniversary time of that. My like my body always just kind of knows. And I was talking to a family member, and they like asked me how I was doing, and I was like, yeah, like you know, today's not really a great day. Like this is kind of just on my mind, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they said something, I, I'm sure not meaning it this way at all, and I have I don't have too many hard feelings about it, but they said something like, oh, like, you're not over that yet? Jeez. <laughs> and I was like, like I was kind of speechless at the moment. Oh, man. And then I hung up with the phone. You know, I was just like, ah, oh, click. You know, like, this is, because the message was like, oh, maybe I can't tolerate sort of like the possibility this is still happening for you, which then just, you know, like left me in this lonely space of like, oh shit, well, this is just my thing. I got to hold What well, goes back to the broken thing, right? right. Like they had this thing that you were broken back then and now it's been right. X number of years. Well, you should be fixed by yeah, it. That's good, right? Yeah, no big deal. And I was like, well, the glue hasn't dried yet, but thanks, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it was really, um, yeah, it was a crappy experience, hurtful, you know. And I can see why, if those are the responses from people, even understandable ones where, you know, people don't want to be confronted with the possibility that's how life is for some people, you know, that like those are possibilities. And so maybe they shy away from it uh, and say like, oh, you're not, things aren't better yet. You know, like maybe well-intentioned, maybe not. But yeah, there's like that, you can see why, or I, I could see why people choose then not to be very vulnerable in mm -hmm. sharing their experience, which is the pathway, as we talked about before, to healing for a lot of people. And so being able to have important caring relationships where people can say, yeah, you know, like 
we're never over it and let's figure it out let's just keep going through the ups and downs all the time you know and i'll i'll be here to kind of walk next to you and that process is really powerful um my significant other um this is not the only reason i'm like trying to marry her at some point but you know like, one of the most powerful experiences i remember having uh was uh like one day like it was just kind of having a rough day years and years ago and i was like laying in our bedroom at the time and i was like just staring at the fan like spinning around and just, you know it was kind of one of those days and she came in and like didn't say a word and just like laid down next to me and just was just there like her presence was there and that memory sticks out to me so strongly because i didn't need to talk about it i didn't need to say anything about it i didn't need to try to like frame it conceptualize it do any sort of like language rigmarole with it and just like the presence of like yeah, you know what? Like, there's no time limit on this. I'm not going to look at my watch in a minute and be like, are we done staring at the fan yet? You know, like, there's no expectation of, like, you have to be, quote, unquote, better that ironically makes people feel better because it's like, oh, whatever I'm going through, you can actually stick around for it, which epitomizes connection, not leaving people alone, um, one of my favorite phrases around trauma treatment is like creating a relational home for people's mm. experience to sit in. And I think that kind of sums all that process up. Yeah. Very well, <clears throat> well you, you almost were reading my mind on, I guess the closing question mm. is um, what, and, and again, maybe I should preface it by saying like, this is not medical advice. And I had a, a lawyer on the <laughs> podcast, like this is not legal Don't advice. Sue but, me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but maybe more of like a, a caretaker mm -hmm. role, like um, just the, the presence of being there. And I had recorded one with uh, my friend Aubrey a couple weeks ago about mm. suicide. She had a post on Facebook about yeah. that, about prevention and just sort of, you know, just being there. But like, what would be some general ways that a person could help another in that? traumatic space yeah it's such an interesting thought because i feel very honored that i get to do the work i do with people and i'm surprised honestly that like i get paid for it like i that's such a cliche saying you know or whatever like i do love the work i do and i'm shocked that people come into my office and like pay me money to have literally at the end of the day a conversation with them a dialogue because how often do you converse during the day right like the and, and there's nothing because just because i have a degree hanging on the wall does not make my conversation ability any better than anybody else's you can ask plenty of people at social events that i've been a part of that like my conversational ability is not like you know top notch or anything like that you know? but oftentimes I, I i really think at the heart of that process for me is like a willingness to step into that crap experience that somebody is going through because how many spaces still exist for people to like truly and unequivocally like be who they are where they're at how they're being presently without someone either overtly or covertly trying to tell them that that's not actually okay right like even even in the like it's the new year right like how many ads are out there currently telling people like you can be a better version of you and my thought is like well what's wrong with the current one and why is there <laughs> such a push towards like yeah. becoming some idealized version that we don't even really truly know how to conceptualize right like 
They're like, yeah, be a better you. I don't know who that is, but like, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, you know? And my thought in that process is like, how do we actually come back to this idea that, that yeah, like it's okay to be you, you know, like wherever that process is. And so I really hearken back to, for me, um, and I, I don't know if many or a lot of people share this view, but um, the original version or meaning of the word therapy or therapist in the Greek is that of an attendant hmm. who stands beside. Not somebody who's like way up ahead pointing out new insights that you need to see soon or somebody who's like way behind you pointing out past things, um, you know, but somebody who's standing next to you is willing to like walk hand in hand, not physically, of course, but you know, like in stride next to someone uh, as they kind of walk their path and to be there in that process which means that you might encounter the same gusts of wind that are hitting you in the face or the same rain or whatever. Like you're actually there in the muck of it all. And so, you know, it's weird to say that like people pay me to do that. <laughs> and yet I don't think that process is terribly different from what is often helpful for people in regular day-to-day -day interactions. Like just being a better human being, <laughs> if you will. Like nothing special because, well, it's nothing special and yet it is, right? Because there's so few places I think people can find that. So, you know, I kind of harken back to the idea that uh, not certainly not everything that is therapy is therapeutic and vice versa, that like it doesn't mean it doesn't have to be therapy in order to be therapeutic. So I would say if people like that support system piece, having people around who can validate, tolerate, etc., like that whole process be in it with you. Um, and sometimes that's just finding like a community that is good that you feel a part of one of the things i see frequently with people is it's not so much they're unwilling to like do work of like changing habits or doing things different in their life but they also 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 or often don't exist in a system that supports them changing so if you've been part of a really crappy family all your life and suddenly you're like you know what i'm gonna do something better that's not so toxic that we've always been doing well I don't have buy-in from the rest of the family usually. <laughs> and that makes things a lot more difficult to be open and vulnerable and trying out new things in that process. So uh, sometimes you got to find your people, uh, find your tribe, whatever that looks mm -hmm. like. Um, and that doesn't have to be your flesh and blood tribe. Um, yeah. Taking risks and being vulnerable, I think is really important. Uh, None of this works if you're not willing to maybe kind of step into that unfamiliarity, that uncertainty around it. Uh, and you can do that slowly, right? Like with the exposure process, I, I think secretly that's kind of part of what that's about too, right? Like you don't want to stick your neck across the line because it might get chopped off, you know? Like I might go to the mall and it could be really scary and I run away. But, you know, if I slowly do that process, if I'm exposing myself interpersonally, emotionally to risks that feel important that are feel like valuable to me then i think that's really powerful and I, god if we can do if we could even do half of that most of the time you know like <laughs> god i think yeah that would cure the cure the world well you use the word honor and that really resonated with me because some of the proudest moments of my life are when people have reached out and it's their dark or darkest time and yeah have confided in me mm -hmm. and yeah. I was honored that they would reach out. Right. Yeah. There's an old, um, 
there's a philosopher out there named Hans George Gadamer, and hmm. he talked about um, two different types of dialogue that you can have with people. And he said one type of dialogue is one where there's like a preset idea of what we're going to be talking about. And it, it's going to move along these like certain lines, you know, during the conversation and, you know, with a goal in mind of where we're going to end up. I've heard some people say that that's like an ideal version of how you might think about therapy. Um, and, uh, but he said, but there's another type of dialogue, one where both people come to the conversation, maybe having some ideas about where it might go, but also being open to just sort of where it goes, like the how we have the conversation more as, the, as opposed to the what, and letting it just go. Uh, he said, imagine talking to someone like on their deathbed uh, and like just having a conversation with them. Like mm. it's not meant to go anywhere, right? Like this is just a conversation we're having. And he said, at the end of the day, he said, if someone's on their deathbed, he said, imagine them looking back over the course of all their conversations in life and wondering, he said, I wonder which one they would find most meaningful. The ones that had a preset goal of like, we need to get to this point A or B or ones that just sort of like developed in tandem as they went along. And he said, my guess is that most people would say the second. And that's actually kind of what I think therapy slash living slash connecting is. See what happens. Yeah. Right. Who knows, right? <laughs> and just try to work on acceptance of it, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, which is, I think, the hard part. Very easy to say, but oh. very hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't ask me if I do this in my regular life all the time, you know, or anything. <laughs> But yeah, no, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the gist of it all, I think. Well, Trey, this has been great. It's been great to do yeah. this one-on-one and see you again and appreciate you making the time and, and being open and vulnerable about this. Yeah. Um, where can people find you if they want to talk more or enlist your services or? Um, well, let's see. Depends on which job I'm doing which day. So <laughs> if you want to go to grad school and have me basically just repeat the same thing I just told you over the last hour, then uh, you can find me teaching at DU and CU occasionally. Um, but yeah, I have a private practice in the community uh, that is just, I think, found under my name. Uh, it's te- I think technically called Quandary Peak Counseling, but um, yeah, my name is searchable. Um, yeah, and then I work with, um, like I said, some law enforcement and first responder personnel as well so somewhere in the midst of all that i'll post links to quandary peak on that so if people want to email oh, sure. yeah cool to do, but yeah i'm around thanks a ton yeah man thanks i appreciate happy it. new year it's great to see you yeah you too <laughs>